Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome to Are You For Real? My name's Tom, and with me as always is Grant. Hello, baby. What's new, everyone? My name's Tom, as I said, but I don't know what's going to happen in this episode. It's all about Grant. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's put a lot of pressure on me here. Yeah. Well, it's a it's a subject that you're not too familiar with here, huh? UFOs. Yeah, exactly. You know nothing. I uh, well, not a. Well, first off, I I do want to say that uh, I've been looking for some stories here, right? Like the ones I was excited about when we started were the the um to the Stars Academy and all those happenings, right? And all the and, Lazar uh, stuff and too. Lazar, of course, that was big. Yeah, and uh, we went through some of the classic ones here, so. I'm I'm having uh, I've been trying to find some good stories to cover on the show, and it's been a little more difficult than I imagined at first. You know, there's a there's a lot of stories out there, but um, you know, to cover them for like an in depth conversation that's interesting is a little it takes some criteria, you know. Yeah, it does, and a lot of UFO stuff by nature is an enigma wrapped in hearsay, covered up with a nice heaping dollop of mist. That's true. It's like the X-Men character. Basically, I mean, I don't want to do a bunch of uh, episodes on strange craft sightings as all we can really do is report the facts and then we can speculate on what happened, which I think will get kind of old pretty quick, you know? Yeah. Um, On the other hand, I think that uh, odd sightings or strange events by uh, credible witnesses are also pretty interesting. And for those who are interested in the topic of UFOs, I think that examining these incidents and trying to put a, a pattern to them, a pattern to them rather, um, is also important in trying to, to paint a better, bigger picture of uh, what might be out there. Um, in the future, I will try to include more abduction scenarios, I think, as I, as I think these may be a little more interesting to discuss. But again, I don't really want every episode to devolve into like discussions about whether hypnosis is a reliable uh, investigative method or or speculation, you know, or us just speculating on whether somebody's lying, basically. They are. (laughs) Yeah. I think it'll devolve into that pretty quick. And then I just feel stupid, like repeating, you know, like telling what about a dream I had or some story that somebody made up or something. No, man. But I think what we're trying to do here and more accurately, what you are doing an excellent job of here is, Finding stuff, as you said, that um, can be verifiable either in the aggregate, like in terms of um, testimony from fairly reliable sources combined with um, cameras or radar readings and or uh, things that were just witnessed by tens, dozens, if not hundreds of people, like the, the one in Tehran that we talked about not too long ago. Right, right. But so, all I can really do is report the facts on it and then... I guess we speculated on it a little bit, but yeah, um, it's fun, man. But basically, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to find stuff with some actual evidence to back it up. Um, right. So I don't know. So some of these might be a little, a little shorter than, uh, than our previous ones, you know? Um, yeah, I'm just trying to figure out the best way to, to go about it basically. Well, you know what? This is a work in progress and I don't think anyone would begrudge us. Yeah. Well, um, well, all of that being said, today we are going to examine a pretty well-known case of a uh, professional airline pilot witnessing some strange objects while flying over Alaska in 1986. Uh, most of this information is taken from the MUFON page. And so MUFON is the, uh, uh, it's the Mutual UFO Network, which is a, a big investigative organization. 
here in the U.S. of A. Maybe worldwide. I don't know. But um, I hope it's worldwide if it's mutual. Yeah, me too. I um, hope other people are given as much as we're taken. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so if you check the, the links in the show notes, there's a link to extensive documentation with over 100 pages, including transcripts and official FAA documents and reports regarding the situation. I think FAA was at the Federal Airline Authority or Federal Aviation Administration. Okay. Are these both guesses or you know that's what it is? I'm pretty sure it's that. Or okay. it's ballpark. I like mine better, but uh <clears throat> who knows. But anyway, it's an official airline thing, huh? Yeah, it's not federal, it's like worldwide, huh? The or, FAA? Yeah. Wait, no, what is it? It's Federal Aviation Administration. Okay. Yeah. Well, well this is good. Good listening, I'm sure, for people. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I've seen the, uh, the incident touted as the first official radar return on a UFO. So what do you think of that? Oh, Jack? dang. Yeah. Um, so ever me, like as in, yeah, we didn't get anything from the fifties, like with the Foo Fighters and everything. No, I don't think so. Cause I think they pretty much have like jamming technology or, or whatever stealth technology, you know? Oh, um, that was something I don't think we really went into, but, uh, David Fravor, he, he actually said that he was getting jammed. His signal was getting jammed, you know, which is a, I mean, that's an aggressive act. Yeah. And, you know, all planes are supposed to have their own transponders and stuff so you can identify them. Right. Each one is an individual. The address. Right. Exactly. I mean, basically, you're supposed to be able to identify things in the air so you know what's flying around with you. Right. As far as I understand, anyway. But, all makes um, sense. So uh, Japan Airlines flight 1628 was a UFO incident that occurred on November 17th, 1986, involving a Japanese Boeing 747 cargo aircraft. The aircraft was en route, en route, en route, mm-hmm. en route, en from en route. Paris, en route, en route, from uh, Paris, it's got to be hard to listen to. Um, so the aircraft was en route from Paris to Narita, Tokyo, with a cargo of, here's another word, Beaujolais wine. Wow. Yeah. Are you serious? They're actually from going from Paris to Tokyo? You better believe it. And they're it. flying over the U.S.? Yeah, yeah. Which seems... That does seem a bit odd. I wouldn't think that would be like the shortest route, but well, what do they, I know? Maybe they didn't want to fly over the Soviet Union or something? I don't Ooh, know. Ooh, good call. Um, but okay. yeah, that's what they were doing. Um, on the Reykjavik, yeah, Iceland, yeah, to Anchorage section of the flight at uh, five eleven p.m. over eastern Alaska, the crew first witnessed two unidentified objects to their left. These abruptly rose from below and closed in to escort their aircraft. Each had two rectangular arrays of what appeared to be glowing nozzles or thrusters, uh, though their bodies remained obscured by darkness. When closest, the aircraft's cabin was lit up and the captain could feel their heat on his face. Oh, my God. These two craft departed before a third, much larger disc-shaped object started trailing them, causing the pilots to request a change of course. Anchorage Air Traffic Control obliged and requested an oncoming United Flights, uh, I'm sorry, United Airlines flight to confirm the unidentified traffic. But when it and a military craft sighted Jap- Japan Airlines, JAL, I'll say, 1628 at about 5.51 p.m., no other craft could be distinguished. The sighting of 50 minutes, 5-0 minutes, 
ended in the vicinity of Mount McKinley. So that's the, the rough overview here, and then we'll get into the details here. Okay. So you said something about an escort. So the unidentified flying objects appeared to be escorting the JAL flight? Right. I think that is some odd phrasing there. Yeah. Um, escort- again, I'm, I'm reading this off the MUFON page, you know? Okay. Yeah. Escorting um, implies like... But basically, yeah, they all of a sudden they were like right in front of them from what I understand. We'll get into this in, in more detail here, but yeah, they just were right in front of them basically and maintaining the same speed as an escort would. It's not like they were like, him, you guys okay? We're going to guide you in here. Gleep, glop, gloop, glop. Well, it, and I hope that, well, I'm glad that the Japan Airlines request to be rerouted was granted. Right. <laughs> so like, uh, we got some UFOs up here. Can we get a different route? And they're like, nah, stick with it, buddy. Negative Japan, just keep your distance. <laughs> um. So then as soon as JAL 1628 straightened out of its turn at 5.11 p.m., Captain Taruchi noticed two craft to his far left and some 2,000 feet below his altitude, which he assumed to be military aircraft. These were pacing his flight path and speed. At 5.18 or 5.19 p.m., the two objects abruptly veered to a position about 500 feet or 1,000 feet in front of the aircraft, assuming a stacked configuration. Stacked? Yeah, I'm not sure what that means. Okay, like I think, up and down? I think I they assume? were, uh, yeah, directly. Like a stack of flapjacks. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I would assume that means that one was above the other one, but uh, I'm okay. not too sure. Is that when the face melting happened? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, when it was right in front of them. So at first when they saw them, I know they were like five to ten miles away, and they just saw some lights, you know, so they assumed it was another craft. And then I think, from what I understand, they, they suddenly the craft were like right in front of them, so, or these lights were. Um, but it goes on to say, uh, what else was I going to say? Oh, yeah, and then this is... Um, I think the captain goes, I'm going to, I'm going to read the captain's account, firsthand account in a little bit, but, uh, I believe it's, it's pretty dark. You know, there's no, uh, there's no sun up that far North at this time. So, uh, but the moon was out and it was a clear night. So nice. Yeah. Um, as soon as, oh yeah. So in doing so, so yeah, basically these craft, they, um, you know, they're in front of the aircraft, assuming a stacked configuration. These things were stacked. Um, so in doing so, they activated, quote, a kind of reversed thrust, and their lights became dazzlingly, dazzling, dazzlingly bright, end quote. Uh, to match the speed of the aircraft from their sideways approach, the objects displayed what Tarauchi described as a disregard for inertia. Jeez. They had a disregard for human and or alien life, too. <laughs> quote, uh... The thing was flying as if there was no such thing as gravity. It sped up, then stopped, then flew at our speed in our direction, so that to us it appeared to be standing still. The next instant it changed course. In other words, the flying object had overcome gravity, end quote. You know know what's interesting to me already at this point? It hmm. seems like there's a source of propulsion because you mentioned nozzles or some kind of... uh, the thing that caused the the face melting, at least when we're up close or whatever. But in a lot of the UFO stuff we've examined so far, there is no visible source or auditory source of propulsion. Agreed. So this is pretty interesting, man. I'm right. dig- I'm digging it so far. And um, it also seems to match what what we've heard about the flight patterns of other craft, obviously, with no regard for gravity or 
yeah. physics, the laws of physics. Um, that we know about. Right. But then that is weird if you, if they're using a, I don't know, a commonplace propulsion system like thrust. Yeah. And it's also weird that they're, it, it seems like they're obviously attempting to interact with this plane too. Right. A lot of the other UFO stuff that we've encountered uh, or we've discussed seems like the UFO is either uh, oblivious or indifferent to um, um, humans. Right. But this one obviously looks like, hey, we're, we're going to go up to this flight and see what's going on. Agreed. Agreed. Um, so uh, the quote unquote reverse thrust caused a bright flare for three to seven seconds to the extent that Captain Terauchi could feel the warmth of their glows. And uh, air traffic control was notified at this point about 5.19 p.m. who could not confirm any traffic in the indicated position. After three to five minutes, the objects assumed a side-to-side configuration, which they maintained for another 10 minutes. They accompanied the aircraft with an undulating motion and some back-and-forth rotation of the jet nozzles, which seemed to be under automatic control, causing them to flare with brighter or duller luminosity. Now I've I've seen a, a drawing or a kind of a picture of what they look like, so it was. Well, maybe I should I should go into the the explanation, but it was basically like two rectangles of equal size, of like a patch of lights, kind of like stadium lights or something like that, you know. Okay. And then like a dark section in in the middle of it. <clears throat> uh, let me see if it describes it in a little more detail here. Um, each oh here we go. <laughs> Each object had a square shape consisting of two rectangular arrays of what appeared to be glowing nozzles or thrusters, separated by a dark central section. Captain Terauchi speculated in his drawings that the objects would appear cylindrical if viewed from another angle, and that the observed movement of the nozzles could be described to the cylinder's rotation. The objects left abruptly at about 5.23 p.m., moving to a point below the horizon to the east. Does that make any sense when I'm yeah, describing it? Yeah, it does. It? Yeah. So they just kind of yeah. moved away. Or, I mean, the motion, though, because I think that's a little confusing. I mean, how do you describe the motion of undulating lights? You know, I mean, you could picture that in different ways. But uh, so it sounds like they might have been like kind of rotating or something. Or That's the impression that I'm getting from this. And, uh, and we don't know. I mean, he felt warmth. And I think he's assuming it looked like flames because it was kind of flickering and they were, uh, what do you call it, like dimming or. Um, fluctuating, I guess. Yeah. But it, it could have been lights. I mean, who knows? You know, I don't. <laughs> I, I don't either, man. Yeah, it's weird. It's an unusual case, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, that's really freaky that they're playing almost almost playing chicken. I'm wondering if it, if it is like some kind of experimental craft, but it seems pretty useless for something the military is developing, you know? Well. Seems like it would consume a lot of fuel, too. And maybe they're, maybe it's a rotating thing where they're pressurizing the jet exhaust or something that's spinning around, but that seems kind of crazy. And I don't know much about aviation anyway. So this was mid eighties. This was 86. Yeah. So I'm sure drones were in their infancy at best at that time. I believe the stealth from what I understand that wasn't manufactured until maybe a year later or something like that. Yeah. From what I was reading. So I, I think maybe practical uses, if it was a drone or if these were drones, I mean, they could be used as, I guess, decoys or, you know, if you have a fighter jet and you want an escort. Right. If, you know, you're in a dogfight with another high-speed aircraft, 
you could have a couple decoys that could either, you know. But the speed and the way it was moving doesn't seem to match conventional aircraft. That's so true. You keep that in mind too. That's true. But, uh, Especially the fact that it just blasted away into the into the horizon. Right. And it would make sense if you saw flickering lights like that and you're a, a jet pilot, then you would assume that it's jet propulsion or something. But right. again, we don't know. No, we don't. We just have Mr. Tarauchi's word for it. Yeah. I have no idea how to pronounce his name here. Is no. that is it's Terra T E R A U C H I. So Terra Uchi. Terra Uchi, yeah, that's what I okay. imagine. Um Okay, so where the first objects disappeared, Captain Terauchi now noticed a pale band of light that had mirrored their altitude, speed, and direction. Setting their onboard radar scope to a 25 nautical mile range, he confirmed an object in the expected 10 o'clock direction at about 7.5 nautical mile distance and informed ATC, air traffic controller, of its presence. Anchorage found nothing on their radar, but Elmendorf ROCC directly in his flight path reported a surge primary return after some minutes. So basically that's um, a little confusing. It's uh, Elmendorf air force base is the Alaskan NORAD regional operations control center. So, uh, so they did get a signal return after a little bit. And I heard some of the radio chatter on there and uh, I'm not sure you know, it gets confusing because there's a few different players in here because there's the uh, the airport or the airfield and then there's the military. Is it in English? Yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. Um, but, uh, yeah, what is NORAD? Do you know? Um, I know it's like a, it's a defense. It's right. a defense thing. Okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, that's who, uh, if you remember, we're talking to uh, Fravers, the guy that caught the Tic Tac on video, he's he's he assumed the person that he was talking to on the phone was from NORAD too. So they're kind of like a, I think they're uh, basically part of the Department of Defense. Yeah, <laughs> he's mouthing that he doesn't really know. If no <laughs> you can't idea, tell, <laughs> um, yeah, I wonder. Well, I don't want to have a whole show of us just looking stuff up here, but uh. So as the um, city lights of Fairbanks begin to illuminate the object, Captain Terauchi believed to perceive the outline of a gigantic spaceship on his port side that was, quote, twice the size of an aircraft carrier, end quote. It was, however, outside First Officer Tame Fuji's field of view. Terauchi immediately requested a change of course to avoid it. The object, however, followed him, quote, in formation, end quote, or in the same relative position throughout the 45-degree turn a descent from 35,000 to 31,000 feet and a 360 degree turn, which seems weird. He just like turned around a 360 degree turn. Yeah. That okay. would be a, a complete circle. Yeah. Right? Maybe they meant 180. I don't know. Maybe, um, twice the size of an aircraft carrier. That's what I want to talk about. Yeah. Can you imagine how, how I can scary imagine that would be, that yeah. would be horrifying, man. That's uh, like, and a, pretty amazing, pretty incredible. That's like one of the airships out of final fantasy. How did you, how do you, I mean, there must be techniques, but um, how would you be able to tell the size of something just floating in the air, you know? Well, I'm not a pilot, obviously, uh, mm -hmm. but I think they probably are trained in... Um, True. How would you in, be able to judge the distance? Judging size you know? and distance in that, and I'm sure using their instruments. And I guess after logging many, 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 many hours of, of flight, you kind of get, I mean, you'd probably be able to predict... 
That's how, how far something away, how far away something is for you. Just in the event that your all your sensors or anything goes out, you're probably gonna have to eyeball stuff. That's so. true, and I'm forgetting. I just I just said that the the flight crew were able to figure out how far away it was from them. So so he knew the distance. He knew the range. Okay, and twice the size of an aircraft carrier. That is mind boggling. It is right. Yes. Um. And uh, I like how they describe it as a gigantic spaceship, too. <laughs> it's um, an understatement. Yeah. So anyway, um, the short-range radar at Fairbanks Airport, however, failed to register the object. Um, Anchorage ATC offered military intervention, which was declined by the pilot due to his knowledge of the Mantell incident. The object was not noted by any of two planes which approached Japan Airlines 1628 to confirm its presence, by which time Japan Airlines 1628 had also lost sight of it. Um, Japan Airlines 628 arrived safely in Anchorage at 1820. All of a sudden they switched to military time, but uh, so I think that's 620 p.m. Right, okay. About so, an hour later. Yes. Um, and so, I'm sure they were shaking in their boots. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I don't think they were that alarmed by it. But, oh my God, a flying well, they, airship? They, they started freaking out when they saw that the big thing and it, and it was following them, you know. Um, but it does seem kind of funny to me that Captain Tara Uchi was concerned about the Mantell incident. Are you familiar with that one? No. Enlighten okay. me. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so on, on 7th of January, or January 7th, 1948, Godman Army uh, Airfield at Fort Knox, Kentucky, received a report from the Kentucky Highway Patrol of an unusual aerial object near Madisonville, Kentucky. Uh, reports of a westbound circular object, 250 to 300 feet in diameter, were received from Owensboro and Irvington. Um, at about 1.45 p.m., Sergeant Quentin Blackwell saw an object from his position in the control tower at Fort Knox. Two other witnesses in the tower also reported a white object in the distance. Colonel Guy Hicks, the base commander, reported an object he described as very white and about one-fourth the size of the full moon. Through binoculars, it appeared to have a red border at the bottom. It appeared stationary, or remained stationary, seemingly, for one and a half hours. Observers at Clinton County Army Airfield in Ohio described the object as having the appearance of a flaming red cone trailing a gaseous green mist and observed the object for around 35 minutes. Jeez. Uh, another observer at Lockbourne army airfield in ohio noted quote it just before leaving it came to very near the ground staying down for about 10 seconds then climbed at a very fast rate back to its original altitude 10,000 feet leveling off and disappearing into the overcast heading 120 degrees its speed was greater than 500 miles per hour in level flight wow and so this was 48 you said 1948 yeah this is an old one it's just i think it's one of the ones that kind of uh prompted the government to do Project Blue Book. Yeah. Which was a, as well, that, most people know, but that, that was a, the federal government investigation of UFOs. Right. And Roswell happened in 47. So this was... But this is one of the big ones, and we'll see why, because someone actually lost their life pursuing it here. So four... Uh, sorry, I just... Spoiler alert. Um, wow. So four F-51D Mustangs of Seaflight, 165th Fighter Squadron, Kentucky Air National Guard, one piloted by Mantell, were already in the air and told to approach the object. Blackwell was in radio communication with the pilots throughout the event. One pilot's Mustang was low on fuel, 
and he quickly returned to base. Ruppelt notes that there was some disagreement among the aircraft traffic controllers as to Mantell's words as he communicated with the tower. Some sources reported that Mantell had described an object, quote, which looks metallic and of tremendous size, end quote. But according to Ruppelt, others disputed whether or not Mantell actually said this. Hmm. So that's up in the air there. Um, the other two pilots accompanied Mantell in steep pursuit of the object. They later reported they saw an object, but described it as so small and indistinct that they could not identify it. Mantell ignored suggestions that the pilot should level their altitude and try to more clearly see the object. Uh, only one of Mantell's wingmen, Lieutenant Albert Clemente, had an oxygen mask, and his oxygen was in low supply. Clements and the third pilot, Lieutenant Hammond, called off their pursuit at 22,500 feet. Mantell continued to, to climb, however. According to the Air Force, once Mantell passed 25,000 feet, he blacked out from the lack of oxygen, and his plane began spiraling back towards the ground. A witness later reported Mantell's Mustang in a circling descent. His plane crashed on a farm south of Franklin, Kentucky, on the Kentucky-Tennessee state line. Jeez. Yeah, he, uh, he did not survive. Um, so I don't know. That's, it seems like a strange thing to uh that was that must be I mean I guess Captain Terra Terauchi was concerned about possible violence or something occurring um and again I'm I'm going to go to a statement from him in just a second and he kind of describes his thought process there but uh maybe that's something in pilot lore that gets passed around you know of you know a pilot actually dying yeah, and I there, can imagine that, you know, especially due to a UFO-related thing. On the other hand, yeah, there's a lot of rumors that went around about that event, uh, the Mantell incident, that you know it was shot down or the plane was turned off by the aliens and stuff like that. But they, I mean, the common common explanation is that he just went too high and passed out. You know, well, it, God, observing it for between someone said that it was stationary for what. 35 minutes, I believe is what you said. Right. Well, um, get your cameras out, dudes. It's like 1940-something. I mean, <laughs> that would be nice. One yeah. of the theories is that it was like a an early weather balloon type thing, like a big balloon that goes really high, you know, so that would explain why it was floating there. Um, but it was top secret at the time, so hopefully the guy didn't lose his life, you know. Are weather balloons still a, a thing? A balloon. I have no idea. They were a big thing in the late 40s, apparently. Yeah, I'm sure spy balloons were, too, you know. Yeah. I don't know if it explains the, uh, the 500 mile per hour movement or anything no, like that. No, I don't you know? imagine a balloon moving rapidly at all or shooting, like, green gaseous stuff. Is that what it... <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it would have, like, equipment hanging off the bottom, but, yeah, I mean, I don't know how seriously you can take a lot of these statements. I mean, there's a lot of different descriptions of it that don't really seem to match, but, it, yeah, it seems to be luminous towards the bottom and... So who knows? I don't know. It's mysterious, you know. Um, when, and then when I first heard about it, my friend, who uh, he sent me a link about it, and he said, you know, it's, it's near Fort Knox. Those aliens love the gold, you know. <laughs> <laughs> have you heard that? Like Anunnaki and all that stuff. I guess we're gonna have to get no. into that. Yeah, is that is that ancient alien stuff? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's Zachariah Sitchin. Basically, the the theory that we were engineered from the Anunnaki in their image to. Uh, to mine gold for them. Wow. And I believe it's because they needed like gold powder to put in their atmosphere to block radiation and stuff. So they want the gold. Yeah. They give, want the gold. Give them the gold. Um, they just want to know where the gold. 
I want to I want to do an episode on all the alien races. I was doing some research on that, but uh, there's not a lot of good sources out there for that kind of thing. <laughs> well, uh, hey man, I'm I'm game. It seems like every page has a different list of the ten alien races visiting the Earth. Um, but yeah, we can get into it. It might be a goofier episode. You know, it's it's hard I'm, to take I'm, some of this stuff seriously. I'm totally okay with goofy as long as we preface it with goofy. Now, Mufon actually does have a list of like. 10 races that are, are visiting earth. But again, it's hard to uh, corroborate this kind of stuff or find any kind of cohesiveness. Well, here we go. Here's, here's my Sagan impression. Ready? Carl Sagan said something along the lines of, and I'm paraphrasing, we must not be afraid to speculate, but we must be careful to distinguish speculation from scientific fact. A lot of these pages too. I mean, I just want to read them to you because the way they're written, I don't know if it's like an English as a first language issue or just, um, an issue with language in general or what? But, uh, <laughs> Communi- just general pretty, communication yeah. errors. <laughs> or it's, I don't know, it's funny. Um, so anyway, I thought that was an interesting little story, you know, and that's that's a big one. But that's one where it's like, how am I, how are we going to do a whole episode on that? You know, there's not a lot out there about it. But Okay. So there was, so this story from 1940-something was in the mind of the pilot, and that's why he didn't, he gives that as the reason why he didn't want any military to come near and identify the, you know, and, and check out the object, escort him back, okay. which, which seems odd to me because I would think that you would want that, but maybe he didn't want to provoke anything or... That's well, true. If you see something twice the size of an aircraft carrier in the air, it's obviously technologically superior to us and you're going to have an Independence Day type scenario. Right. He probably hadn't seen Independence Day yet since it hadn't been released or maybe well, even conceived. You never yet. know, but... Yeah. but uh, you don't know what kind of connections this guy has. That's true. Tara Uchi might have been all about the ID4. He probably had the spec <laughs> script there. He's yeah. keeping his eye on a young Will Smith. But uh, Welcome to ARF. <laughs> so, um, yeah. I, I mean, obviously, I'd be creeped out by a huge flying saucer sitting in the darkness seeming to follow me, and I would uh, probably want other observers, too. You know, I mean, I guess if you're looking at it, you don't really care about proving it to other people that much. But, uh, yeah. That would be first on my mind. I want some witnesses. You know? Yeah, that's always, you know, me saying, yep. hey, click away, guys. Get some pictures here. But again, I could see flying an aircraft. Uh, it's a cargo jet full of wine. Um, right. There's some goods in there, dude. And uh, yeah. Um, so anyway, that's that's the MUFON report on it. Um, now I want to I want to get into a section from uh, Captain Terauchi's personal statement. Uh, remember that this is translated from his native Japanese, but, uh, yeah, let's take a, take a break here for a second and then I'll come back and, and we can get it from the man himself. Sounds good. Okay. So yeah, I wanted to read his, uh, his personal statement here from the captain himself. I always like these firsthand accounts, you know? Yeah, dude. Um, Tarauchi. And like I said, I, uh, I have a link to it's it's from the Wayback Machine. You seen that? The Wayback page. It's like an archive of the old internet because I guess it's not. I don't know much about it, but you know, it's like you can find stuff on the internet that's not there anymore. Oh, cool! So it's an, an entire archive of the well, it's internet from, internet one Yeah, I don't know about that, but uh, <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what it is. But it's basically you can use it to find stuff that's. Uh, it's not available anymore on certain websites or whatever. You know, if someone takes something down, um, it's like the fourth link on there. It's basically the UFO documents. But what's, what's interesting is the, uh, the FAA, they released 
all of the documents for it. You could buy it from them. And I, I heard it speculated it's because of all the UFO researchers that were reaching out for, for information on it. And they sold this package for like 200 bucks. And I, I was looking at it because when you look at it, it has all like the order form and everything on there and the advertisements for it or not advertisements, you know, but uh, it's not like they were putting ads in magazines or anything. But uh, I don't know. It's just kind of weird. You know, it's interesting. Um, and uh, and there's also uh, like they interviewed all the, the air crew and everything. And and uh, they have transcripts of that, which I was reading. And again, there's a lot of language barriers and stuff. So I'm sure. Um, but I, I do think it's interesting that the, the other two um, pilots, and it may—I don't know if it's because of the stigma for coming out with uh, with UFO information, which the captain kind of suffered from that. It looks like, which I'll get into in a little bit after we read his testimony. Um, but they only really confirmed that they saw lights. You know, they don't really speculate too much on it, on what it was or anything like that. Um, they didn't go full aircraft carrier like Tara Uchi did. Right. And they, yeah, they didn't say it was a huge almond shape, twice the size of, uh, of an aircraft carrier or anything. One guy, the, uh, the engineer there, you know, who does all the calculations and stuff in the back. It's, I guess it was a three man crew. It's the pilot, the co-pilot, and then the, uh, um, the engineer and, uh, the engineer, he said he saw it for like five or 10 minutes, but he just saw like a light you know, off to the side, the big one for five or 10 minutes. Yeah. That's what he said, which is funny, you know, but, but that's it, like an eternity in yeah. UFO time. Man. But remember the, the craft was kind of in the dark and he could only see it like at the last minute he saw it was revealed by the light reflecting off the mountains, I guess, or something. Wow. Yeah. Well, let's read his account and maybe he'll explain it a little bit more, sure. um, but the co-pilot, he couldn't see it at all because of the angle where he was sitting. You know, he said it was blocked by the pilot himself or by, um, the beams in between the, the window or whatever. So, but they all saw the craft up in front of them. So anyway, mm-hmm. just kind of interesting background there or maybe not interesting, but a little more detail. Yeah. Um, so it's really kind of resting on the captain and we'll get into the criticisms, but a lot of the criticism is that he seems like a true believer of UFOs. You know, the way he's describing stuff as a mothership or a, a spacecraft, you know? Um, anyway, um, but these guys all had a lot of airtime and experience. You know, they're not. Well, they don't let anybody, just anybody, fly a cargo of fine French wine from right. Paris to Japan. <laughs> yeah, sure. exactly. Um, so, yeah, let me get into it here. Let me pull the page up. So, yeah, I'm just going to read through. It's a few pages here, but uh, I just think it's it's kind of interesting. He gives good details. And again, like I said, this is a translation from Japanese, so uh, might be a little. Um, yeah, might not be uh, grammatically correct in all the ways, but uh, anyway. We'll let the. Let the listener judge for themselves. We'll be the anti GC crew here. And I'm going to start in the beginning. Now, it goes through some details about the flight and, and how that works, you know, and how he was happy to find this job because it's kind of a short flight. Probably pays good ducats. And uh, anyway, so they, you know, there's a few stop offs on the way. Um, and then uh, so they reach like the, the border to Alaska. And um, I'm going to start right in here. Uh, we began the communication with the Anchorage Center about 5.05 p.m. The flight occurred. 
course we had acknowledged was Jet 529 direct to Fort Yukon and Jet 125 via Nenana, Shiger, spelling question mark, and to Anchorage. The Anchorage Center ordered us to fly direct to. How does this kill me here? Talkeetons <laughs> uh, provided us transponder codes and placed us on a radar scope at the same time. The strange phenomenon happened immediately after we began left rotation, following the order of taking the direct flight course. There was an unidentifiable light ahead of the rotation. We set the course toward Talkeetna and began level flight. Then we saw lights that looked like aircraft lights, 30 degrees left front, 2,000 feet below us, moving exactly in the same direction with the same speed as we were. We were at the altitude of 35,000 feet. Flying speed was 900 kilometer per hour to 910 kilometer per hour. We ignored the lights, thinking probably they were special missioned aircrafts or two fighters because we did not notice the lights while communication with the Anchorage Center or on prior visual inspection. However, the position of the lights had not changed even after a few minutes, and that called our attention. The first officer, Tometo, called the Anchorage Center and asked to report to us if there were any aircraft other than ours in the area. The Anchorage Center told us that there were no other aircraft in the north area. We immediately reported back that we were seeing aircraft lights. They again reported that there were no military aircraft, and the ground radar did not show any aircraft but us. They also asked us several times if there were clouds near our altitude. We saw thin and spotty clouds near the mountains below us, no clouds in mid to upper air, and the air current was steady and conditions were quite pleasant. Perhaps the controllers were concerned that an increased use of improved laser beams using clouds was creating moving images. We kept observing the light below us in left front, thinking it was ridiculous to have laser beams testing at the end of a tundra area. Then the two lights began to move in a manner different from ordinary aircraft maneuvers, like two bear cubs playing with each other. I have no idea what that means. What? <laughs> yeah. As if the Pink Floyd laser light show wasn't enough. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, like two bear clubs playing with each other. Maybe that's a Japanese phrase or something. Uh, I I wouldn't know. I can't even, yeah, I can't even picture what he means by that. <laughs> in reference to, to lights. Um, so we continued the flight south along a straight course since the distance from the lights was far enough from us and their movement was not extreme and we felt no immediate danger. I thought perhaps it is one of those things called UFO and taking a photo might help to identify the object later. I asked to bring forward my camera bag that was placed in the rear of the cockpit and began to take a picture. The area in which the plane was flying was unchanged, but the lights were still moving strangely. Well, I'll just read this whole thing, but he goes into his camera. I had ASA 100 film in my camera, mainly to take scenery and had autofocus on, aimed at the object, but the lens kept adjusting and never could set a focus. I changed autofocus to manual focus and pressed the shutter, but this time the shutter would not close. Then our aircraft started to vibrate and I gave up taking a photo. I placed my camera back in the camera bag and concentrated on observing the lights. It was about seven or so minutes since we began paying attention to the lights, most unexpectedly, two spaceships stopped in front of our face, shooting off lights. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> that sounds unexpected. <laughs> uh, the inside cockpit shined brightly, and I felt warm in the face. Perhaps firing of jets was the result to kill inertia of their quick high-speed maneuver, but the ships appeared as if they were stopped in one place in front of us. Then three to seven seconds later, a fire like from jet engines stopped and became a small circle of lights as they began to fly in level flight, at the same speed as we were, showing numerous numbers of exhaust pipes. 
However, the center area of the ship where below an engine might be was invisible. The middle of the body of the ship sparked an occasionally stream of light, like a charcoal fire, from right to left and from left to right. Its shape was a square flying 500 feet to 1,000 feet in front of us, very slightly higher in altitude than us. Its size was about the same size as the body of a DC-8 jet with numerous exhaust pipes. The firing of the exhaust jets varied, perhaps to maintain balance, some because became stronger than others and some became weaker than others, but seemed controlled automatically. That that's an odd description there. Um, I don't know if he, how much he's speculating on the exhaust. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know how much detail he actually saw that left to right motion of the lights. I, I read, I think it was a comment that, um, someone speculating it was like a refueling thing. Like someone had mistaken them for a stealth bomber or something and went to refuel it. Uh, like a prototypical, like a prototype stealth bomber. And, uh, you know, those like re- the midair refueling thing, yeah. like, they drop the nozzle down and he said like <clears> those <throat> lights go left to right. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. So maybe yeah, that would explain why it was just hovering there in front of him. But, um, <laughs> like, here's some fuel, man. Yeah. I don't know how warm that would be. Uh, it, it would explain some nozzles and stuff, I guess. But, uh, I don't know. I didn't really follow up on that too much, but, uh, I guess it's worth speculating about. I don't know. Yeah. Um, it seems like a big mistake to mistake a, a jetliner for, for, for a stealth. stealth yeah, exactly. Yeah, a cargo plane. Um, so we did not feel threatened or in danger because the spaceship moved so suddenly. We probably would have felt more in danger and would have been prepared to escape if the spaceships were shaking unsteadily or were unable to stop themselves. It is impossible for any man-made machine to make a sudden appearance in front of a jumbo jet that is flying 910 kilometers per hour and to move, move along in a formation paralleling our aircraft. Well, look, man, like I, you mentioned earlier that people have taken an issue with his use of the phrase spaceship and right. it might be a translation issue or whatever, but dude, if I was a pilot and I was in, I was flying something that I was used to flying and I see something like that, I'm probably going to call it a spaceship too. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I can't, I'm not faulting the man for calling it, uh, I guess most pilots would say craft or, or something like that, you know, not just spaceship. Well, but. if he, I don't know, man, if he saw something that out of the, out of the ordinary. I right. Mean, hey. Well, um, so yeah, we did not report this action to the Anchorage Center. Honestly, we were simply breathtaking. The VHF communication, both in transmitting and receiving, were extremely difficult for 10 or 15 minutes while the little ships came close to us and often interfered with communication from the Anchorage Center. However, communication conditions became just as good as soon as the ships left us. There were no abnormalities in the equipment or the aircraft. I have no idea why they came so close to us. That again, I don't know why that wasn't in the report, but yeah, that totally matches with what we've heard about other UFOs, you know, well, at least the Tehran one. Yeah. Um, maybe they're jamming it. <laughs> Not if we jam it. Um, then again, there was a pale white flat light on the direction. Well, I, I read that. that was bad intonation. But then again, then again, <laughs> anyway, you get the point. Then again, there was a pale white flat light on the direction where the ships flew away moving in a line along with us in the same direction and same speed and in the same altitude as we were. Again, we began communicating with the Anchorage Center. 
We said that we could see a light in the 10 o'clock position at the same altitude and wondered if they could see anything in their radar. The Anchorage Center replied that they see nothing in their radar. I thought it would be impossible to find anything on an aircraft radar if a large ground radar did not show anything, but I judged the distance of the object visually, and it was not very far. I set the digital weather radar distance in 20 miles, radar angle to horizon. There it was, on the screen. A large green and round object had appeared in 7 or 8 miles away where the direction of the object was. We reported to the Anchorage Center that our aircraft radar caught the object within 7 or 8 miles in 10 o'clock position. We asked if they could catch it on the ground radar, but did not seem they could at all. Normally it appears in red when an aircraft radar catches another aircraft. I wonder if the metal used in the spaceship is different from ours. While we were communicating with the Anchorage Center, the two pale white lights gradually moved to the left side and to left diagonally back 30 degrees as if they understood our conversation, and then when they were beside our aircraft, they totally disappeared from our radar. I don't know why it's as if they could understand their conversation, but... Hmm. Um, when they were in front of us, the ships were positioned slightly higher in altitude than we were, but now they placed themselves slightly below the horizon where it was most difficult for us to see. The distance between us was still about 7 miles to 8 miles visually. When we started to see Fort Yukon diagonally below us at the right, the sun was setting down in the southwest, painting the sky in a slightly red stripe, approximately 2 or 3 millimeters, and gave a bit of light, but the east side was still pitch dark. Far in front of us, there were lights increasing from the U.S. military, Eelson Air Force Base, and Fairbanks. The lights were still following us at exactly the same distance. However, it was too dark to identify by only the lights whether or not they were the same two spaceships that appeared in front of us a few minutes ago. It seemed that we were flying in the lighter side and gave them the advantage of being on the dark side. We had no fears so far, but began to worry since we had no idea for their purpose. When the lights from the Eielson Eielson Air Force Base and Fairbanks became clear and bright, two very bright lights appeared suddenly from the north from a belt of lights, perhaps four or five mountains away. The extremely bright lights reflected on snow on the side of the mountains and seemed even brighter. We wondered if <laughs> this part's funny. We uh, we wondered if they were searching something on the ground surface or to attract question mark lead something. The flight above Alaska territory is generally in the daytime and it is confusing to identify the kind of lights. It cannot be a base for the spaceship. Is it a movie? There was something. Oh yes, it is the Alaska pipeline. The lights must be a pump station for the pipeline. I got it. <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> There's some translation stuff. Going yeah. <laughs> Most yeah. Uh So, yeah, maybe um, I wonder if he was talking to someone and this got transcribed, but it says it's written by Kanju Terauchi, translated by Sayoko Himoto. Anyway, uh, so we arrived at the sky above the Eelson Air Force Base and Fairbanks. It was a clear night. The lights were extremely bright to eyes that were used to the dark. How bright it was. We were just above the bright city lights and we checked the pale white light behind us. Alas, there was a silhouette of a gigantic spaceship. We must run away quickly. Alas, indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Quote, Anchorage Center, this is JL 1628, requesting a change of course to right 45 degrees. End quote. It felt like there were a long time before we received permission. 
When we checked our rear, there was still the ship following us. Quote, this is JL 1628, again requesting for change the course 45 degrees to the right. End quote. We had to get away from that object. Well, JL 1628, this is Anchorage Center. We advise you continue and take 360 degree turn. JL 1628, thank you. We will continue 360 degree turn. Some pilot chatter there. Yeah. Um, it was too slow to circle in the autopilot mode. Therefore, we switched to the manual mode and set to turn right on a 30 degrees bank. We looked to our right forward, but did not see any light. We were relieved, thinking the object may have left us and returned to the level flight. But when we checked to our rear, the object was still there in exactly the same place. Anchorage Center, this is JL 1628. The object follows us in formation. We request a change in altitude, 3,100 feet. Yes, 3,100 feet. This is Anchorage Center, JL 1628. Ascend to 3,100 feet. Uh, the consumption of fuel during this flight was almost as expected, but there was only 3,800 pounds left, and as such was not enough for extra flying for running around. We have got to arrive at Anchorage. Anchorage Center, this is JL 1628. We request permission for the direct flight to Talkeetna. JL 1628, this is Anchorage Center. We authorize a direct flight to Talkeetna. <laughs> That's probably not what they said. <laughs> Talkeetna, uh, we checked behind us again. The ship was in formation and descending with us, ascending with us. We wondered and feared as to their purpose. JL1628, this is Anchorage Center. Would you like to request scramble for confirmation? The Anchorage Center, this is JL1628. We would not request scramble. We turned the offer down quickly. <laughs> As in... You want us to scramble some yeah, fighter yeah. jets? Yeah, that's up what there? they asked them if they wanted some uh, some military scramble. You can do that as a pilot. You can just be like, "Hey, man, I guess so." If you see something weird that's not identifying itself, and uh, what if it's the Ruskies or something? You know, oh, good point. Or you feel in danger? Maybe you need. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, I knew that in the past there was a U.S. military fighter called the Mustang that had flown up high for a confirmation, and a tragedy had happened to it. Even the F-15 with the newest technology had no guarantee of safety against the creature with an unknown degree of scientific technology. We flew toward Talkeetna at an at altitude of 3,100 feet. The spaceship was still following us, not leaving us at all. So I guess he, he wanted to take care of these military pilots. Um, well, that's admirable of him, at least, to try and... Yeah. Okay. And I wonder if in the back of his mind he was like, okay, am I really seeing this? Like, do I really want to... Right. Do, like, I'll bet he's like... Part of him is probably still saying, this can't be real. I might be hallucinating right now. If I ask them to scramble fighters and these fighters come up here, I'm going to be on the hook for some serious cheddar. Yeah, I think he was worried that... I think he was worried about provoking something and turning it into a dangerous situation maybe, but... yeah. Because he seems to definitely think it's real, you know. Because um, you got to imagine this has been like what half an hour now that he's had strange craft around him that he doesn't understand. I would just be creeped out flying around in the dark above Alaska, you know. Yeah, <laughs> all that empty space. I bet it's gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. Well, about the same time, a United Airline passenger aircraft with left Anchorage to Fairbanks flew into the same air zone and began communicating with the Anchorage Center. We heard them transmitting that there was an object near JL 1628 and requesting for confirmation. 
We heard that the Anchorage Center was saying to the United Airline aircraft that JL-1628 was at an altitude of 3,100 feet. Therefore, United Airlines should maintain an altitude of 3,300 feet. It sounded as if Anchorage Center had the United Airline aircraft fly above the spaceship. Are we talking, are you sure it's 3,300 and not 33,000? Yeah, have I been saying 31,000 or? Yeah. No, you've been saying 100. It just seems like. Yeah, you're right. But yeah, it's 3,100 feet. Wow. Okay, I thought it would be a lot higher than that. It didn't, I mean, just separating airplanes by only a couple hundred feet sounds pretty sketchy. But Yeah, that's true. Well, uh, it sounded as if Anchorage Center had the United Airline aircraft fly above the spaceship. We were flying the east side of Mount McKinley. The United Airline aircraft came close to us. The United Airline aircraft requested us to flash landing lights for a visual confirmation, and we both confirmed our positions visually. The United Airline aircraft was coming close to us. We knew that they were watching us. When the United plane came by our side, the spaceship disappeared suddenly, and there was nothing but the light of moon. The strange encounter ended at 75 miles north of Talkeetna, 150 miles away from Anchorage. It compromised or comprised approximately 50 minutes of flight time. So, yeah, I don't know. I like all that pilot talk and stuff. He like obviously he's paying attention to what's going on. Mm-hmm. He's a good observer and good at reporting stuff. Does this sound fishy? Do you think there's any chance he just made it up? <laughs> I mean, it, it is convenient, but who knows? I mean, this stuff's always strange, and these crafts seem to be able to just take off at will, you know, and vanish. So I don't know. But how um, old was? Uh, does it? Do you know how old this pilot was? No, but I know he had like I can't remember exactly where I read it, but he had like quite a few hours of. Uh, it seems like a, it's like a pretty easy way to get yourself into early retirement is to start seeing that you're yeah, saying that well, you're seeing we'll get into that too. <laughs> you think? Maybe. You think he wanted a desk job? Because that's what he got, basically. Oh, God. Well, um, I don't know if he was making it up. I mean, just... There's like a pretty famous picture of him. It sounds, he's got his hands up like he's describing something flying, you know, or like relative positions or whatever. And um, he's pretty pretty elderly in there. Like maybe I would guess like around 50s or something. That's pretty damn old. Yeah. (laughs) I'll be there soon enough. Um, So anyway, yeah, I thought, I thought that that added a little more, more detail, but basically, I mean, it it repeats all the facts I just gave you, you know, but uh, just kind of from his perspective. Um, I love that, like two baby bears playing or something. (laughs) That's a great way to describe lights. Things are just moving back and forth or what? I guess maybe unpredictable. Yeah, unpredictably, but I don't know. I mean, if he's not making it up, I'm sure a lot of people have said he was seeing the moon or he was seeing well reflections, that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's. I mean, let's get into it here because Philip Philip Class, you know, he pops his head up again. It's funny. That's another thing that's in all those documents is there's correspondence between Philip Class and and other ufologists, ufologists, and. Not kind words going back and forth, you know. Really? I don't think a lot of people in the community really liked Philip Class or took him very seriously. This is a very fractured community we're a part of, man. It does seem like Philip Class kind of grabs any any explanation he can and says, yeah, that's what it was. But in this case, it was Jupiter, apparently, maybe Mars. But Right, and that's what caused him to feel the heat on his face. Yeah, and that's, too. that's a big thing, too. But then you got to take his word at it. That, you know what's funny is 
I didn't see in the transcript. It wasn't asked in the interview or anything of the other crewmen, like if they felt the heat or anything like that. So, hmm. and then if you're if you're close behind another craft, do you feel the heat from their thrusters? You know, I would doubt it, but uh, I don't know. Well, depending on how close you were, I guess. Yeah. Um. Well, anyway, so here's the aftermath. Um, this is again from the MUFON report. Um, Captain Teruuchi cited in the official Federal Aviation Administration. There you go. That's what the FAA is. Uh, report that the object was a UFO. In December 1986, Teruuchi gave an interview to two Kyoto, with a D, not a T, Kyoto news journalists. JAL soon grounded him for talking to the press and moved him to a desk job. He was only reinstated as a pilot years afterwards and retired eventually in North Kanto, Japan. Kyoto News contacted Paul Stiuki. Does that name sound familiar? I thought... How do you, how do you spell that? S-T-E-U-C-K-E. I thought it was something that we came across before, but maybe it was just... I've been coming across a lot of names I can't really pronounce. That one doesn't ring a bell to me. Well, he's the FAA public information officer in Anchorage on December 24th and received confirmation of the incident, followed by UPI on the 29th. The FAA's Alaskan region consulted John Callahan, the FAA division chief of the Accidents and Investigations branch, as they wanted to know what to tell the media about the UFO. John Callahan was unaware of any such incident, considering it a likely early flight of a stealth bomber than in development. He asked the Alaskan region in forward or uh, to forward the relevant data to their technical center in Atlantic City, New Jersey, where he and his superior played back the radar data and tied it in with the voice tapes by videotaping the concurrent playbacks. Um, I came across an interesting uh, video of Callahan at a um, at a UFO conference later, and he. Basically, he pulls out like a VHS and a, a tape cassette and like some logs and stuff. He's like, I got all the stuff right here, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but then he doesn't play it. But then I have another video here. It's, it's labeled as an animation. It's not the best animation in the world, but it does have audio recordings of the air traffic controllers and stuff, which is kind of interesting. And you can hear Tara Uchi on there kind of describing it. It's cool. Awesome. Um, is that I, on YouTube? Uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And Sweet. Links in the show notes for sure. Um a day later at FAA headquarters, they briefed Vice Admiral Donald D. Engen, who watched the whole video of over half an hour and asked them not to talk to anybody until they were given the okay, and to prepare an encompassing presentation of the data for a group of government officials the next day. The meeting was attended by representatives of the FBI, CIA, and President Reagan's scientific study team, among others. Upon completion of the presentation, all present were told that the incident was secret and that their meeting never took place. According to Callahan, the officials considered the data to represent the first instance of recorded radar data on a UFO, and they took possession of all of the presented data. John Callahan, however, managed to retain the original video, the pilot's report, and the FAA's first report in his office. The forgotten target printouts of the computer data were also rediscovered, from which all targets can be reproduced that were in the sky at the time. Rad. Yeah. <laughs> he seems like a character, too. But then I'm wondering when he's saying this stuff, like, is he pitching it? Because now he's going to UFO conferences and stuff. But then what would you do if you're a true believer? You want to bring it out to people, too. So Yeah, you got to spread the word, man. Right. After Doty, though, I have a, <laughs> I have a hard time trusting anybody. Um. 
So after a three-month investigation, the FAA formally released their results at a press conference held on March 5th, 1987. Here, Paul Stuckey retracted earlier FAA suggestions that their controllers confirmed a UFO and ascribed it to a split radar image, which appeared with unfortunate timing. He clarified that the FAA did not have enough material to confirm that something was there. And though they were accepting the descriptions by the crew, they were unable to support what they saw. The McGrath incident was revealed here amongst the ample set of documents supplied to the journalists. The McGrath incident. I forgot to look that up, man. I wanted to follow up on that. Um, so, sorry, everyone. Uh, the sighting received special attention from the media as a supposed instance of the tracking of UFOs on both ground and airborne radar while being observed by experienced airline pilots with subsequent confirmation by an FAA division chief. So that's the end of the report there. Um, yeah, any speculation there? You think it was a spaceship and a mothership, or you think it was... The the thing that's kind of hard to uh, to give them credit is that the other ship couldn't see it at all, but maybe it was just the angle it was at or something like that. Yeah. Some kind of stealth technology. Are you talking technology. about the United, the United... Yeah, they didn't see anything when they were vectored there. <clears throat> Man. Um, it, it's, it's another one of those instances where I want to believe the pilot, right? I want to believe him because he's experienced. Um, he's entrusted with, a expensive wine, wine <laughs> expensive machinery, all right, sorts of stuff right? jet, and, li- yeah. and human lives, man. He's entrusted with human right, lives. Right. He's trained. I mean, it sounded like, it sounds like he's flown over the Alaskan region before he's familiar with it. Um, so I want to believe the pilot. However, you know he's a human being just like us, and he's right. not—he's not otherworldly, as far as I know. Mister Tamauchi has never claimed to be, right? Not I mean, of this world. What could you mistake a huge? That's the thing. I mean, if it—if it was just lights, then right. I'd be like, "Look, man, it's probably likelihood is probably reflections off of the snow or something you know, that lit some, up the whole some weird cockpit. little yeah some some weird little." And they went over it many times, like were, were the was the cabin dimmed or were there lights that could have been reflection? And they said, yeah, we were in night mode. We had the lights off, you know, so it wasn't reflections. All the all the crew were sure, especially the lights right in front of them, that they weren't they were real things out there. OK, um, well, let's get into a little bit of the debunction here. Um, debunction. So like, <laughs> so like I said, uh, yeah, you know, there wasn't a clear visual. That's probably one of the most damning pieces of evidence against it, I guess. But um I could see reasons for that, you know. They were just looking at it at the wrong angle. They wouldn't see any lights, and it would just be dark in the sky, you know. Um, I, I would imagine. Um, you know, Captain Terauchi seems to be a believer. Uh, the radar returns are kind of confusing. So false returns or signals from reflections from mountains and snow can be can be around there, you know, so you have to kind of filter out, but people are trained to filter out like false signals. Yeah. And people's lives depend on that. Right. What's a split image. So that is, it, it, um, something that, and again, I don't know a lot about this stuff. Um, okay. Not, but, yeah, I don't either, but it, it sounds like something that's an anomaly, right? Well, what I read, yeah, what it is, is, you know, so a radar turns around and it takes a while for it to do a full cycle and it sends out information and then it, waits for things to bounce back to it to judge, judge where it is that I do know. So uh split image is, uh, 
one uh, an image comes back from this is the way I had it I read it you know but uh basically uh yeah when I was trying to figure out what that means mm-hmm. um it's usually one image would be from the the plane sending its transponder signal and then one would be from the plane itself which okay. d- which doesn't match apparently all the data from the radar because if that's the case, then it, it moves in a straight line, you know, because there's like, it turns once and it sees the craft and then it, and then there's a delay and it sees the, right. I would imagine the transponder signal probably moves faster than the craft or something, you know, since it, well, anyway, it doesn't really well, matter. Well, it probably but, moves uh, at the speed of light. But one would be following the other in a straight line, basically. And that's not what happened. This thing seemed to be moving the same way that they were observing it moving. So that's a strong piece of evidence, I think. I mean, if, if you take that analysis that I got that from, you know. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So, I, and it seems kind of bogus that they came out later and they're like, you know what? It was just a radar thing. Don't worry about it. Yeah, that seems like Roswell stuff, right. <laughs> where they're yeah. like, they're like, guys, guess what? There's aliens. We caught aliens. Yep, Air Force confirms it. We got aliens. Oh wait, never mind. Never mind. Right. Never mind. Never mind. Never mind. Yeah, scratch that. Uh, weather balloon. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, but then that's the stuff where you can just speculate forever. You know. It, I mean, it could be. Uh, experimental craft too that they're trying to keep top secret which is what the guy assumed at first too i imagine that's a good place to do tests you know kind of remote one thing that is seems like there's a lot of air force bases out there one thing that is unbelievably unique about this case is the sheer size of this thing right right too most of, i mean like tic tac and go fast and everything those are relatively smaller well, I've I've heard some stories. Again, I I want to f- kind of find them. I I've, I've heard them mostly on like podcasts and stuff, but uh, of some huge craft that just seem really cool. But it's hard for me to to find like um, you know, I don't know what the title of it is, so it's hard to look up and find those specific instances. What would be? I mean, the the whole point of having a gigantic craft is to house either people or I mean, as far as we know. Uh, creatures or cargo other vehicles or, so yeah. yeah exactly so if this thing is twice the size of a of a man-made aircraft carrier i mean and this, this we're I'm, I'm assuming that this actually happened right but, um god maybe they were maybe those, these were aliens scouting out our planet or something it's like battlestar galactic yeah the or, cylons going into or um or the bs bsg of the galactica herself right or um yeah star destroyer or whatever yeah um yeah it's it's crazy man i, I can't imagine seeing something like that that would be well yeah mind blowing yeah um it's like one of those things where if you see something like that um it would fundamentally change you as a human right like it would it would change your outlook um and i've heard all sorts of like <laughs> I, I can't even remember what documentary it was called, but I remember watching a documentary about uh, how supposedly the Native Americans were unable to see these ships as they approached from right. from the Atlantic Ocean. That seems so weird. Which to is me. ridiculous. I don't believe that for a second. Right. Uh, that you wouldn't be able to visually perceive something just because you hadn't encountered it before, or that your mind can't conceive of it. Right. Um, anyway, I can't remember what that documentary was called. But it, yeah, where did that, that come about? Like, you heard about that too? Yeah, yeah, I've heard that because it, that's it, just it ridiculous. Does, it, it it does, like, I can't no even sense. Picture. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so 
that would be really neat if, if Mr. Is it Tamauchi? I want to say his name right. Uh, Tara Uchi. Tara Uchi mm-hmm. um, had some kind of encounter with an alien vessel that was that's scoping us out either for destruction or assimilation or something. I don't right. know. All these, like you said, they just seem to be either oblivious or or maybe they're just keeping an eye on things, you know? Yeah, but this looks... I mean, if something that big can only have some kind of, I, I think, implications, unless the, <laughs> unless the aliens flying the craft are giants. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so maybe I mean, they're just knows? really... I mean, maybe they're mega... Uh, megafauna <laughs> i mean this is like a chimpanzee trying to get into a human's mindset you know um meaning you know how can we speculate about what an advanced race is motivated by or why they would make anything you know we must not be afraid to speculate <laughs> um so yeah depending on the account you read it seems like the ground crew was receiving direct confirmation of what the air crew were seeing and without getting too technical from what i yeah so I'm led to believe that a split radar image is usually a case of two images coming back, one being the transponder signal and one being the actual return from the physical craft. And this doesn't account for the radar returns placing the other aircraft at different locations around the Japanese flight or Japan mm-hmm. Airlines. Uh, skeptics, in particular Philip Class, um, seem to write this off once again as mistaken sightings of the planet Jupiter possibly Mars, although the air crew makes it clear that visibility was clear and they don't think it possible that they were mistaking astronomical objects for the craft and doesn't explain the heat that the captain felt most importantly or the sheer size. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't see a, a star or a planet and think it's uh, twice the size of an aircraft carrier. That is so mind blowing. Um, yeah. And I think I was telling you the other day, I thought I saw something strange on my way to your house mm-hmm. um and it turned out just to be a plane taking off from miramar right uh but it had the sunlight underneath it and it made it look really eerie and ufo-y and i was like oh my god for like half a second i thought i was actually witnessing a ufo right. so i can't imagine what was going through these guys this guy's mind when he's observing this thing the lights all that stuff for minutes Several minutes, you know. Yeah, I think I think when you see something, you got to judge it by the movement, really, because there's so much stuff in the sky anyway that I'm not going to be able to identify, you know. Yeah. Um, but if you see it darting around or instantly moving from one spot to another, or just hovering in place for a long time, that that's kind of special. Yeah. Well, now we got drones and everything too. What do you do? You think this could have been like a huge balloon kind of experiment or something by the military? But the thing is, I think usually they would say, yeah, we, you know, don't worry about it. We got something in the sky. But if it's top secret, then maybe they, you know, they don't want to be just announcing it to Japanese airlines. I don't know military policy on that, but I think yeah. it would behoove them to say, like, look, we got. Or they'd we, make sure there's no air traffic. That's you know? the thing. You'd route everything. If you're going to have like a secret right, weather right. balloon trial or something, you're going to let Anchorage know. You're going to let every every other base know, like, look don't have anything flying around here. I mean, I think it is kind of telling that they wrote it off as military craft or something. So, I, I mean, it sounds like there's some activity around here. I I don't know. I could lean toward it being the stealth, but yet again, unless it's just his imagination, seeing something that's twice as big as a... Uh, as an aircraft carrier. Yeah. Maybe it was closer to him. I don't know. A stealth's not going to have lights on it or anything either. It's not. Uh, yeah. It's strange, man. Um, 
so yeah. And like I said, I, I didn't find a case where the, it, it didn't, you know, the interviewer wasn't really asking the other crew if they felt the heat. They weren't, he wasn't asking about that. So maybe Teraguchi hadn't even, uh, or Teraguchi, I should say, um, hadn't even reported that yet or something. That's another thing is class says that he kind of, or some skeptics, I don't know if it was class skeptics. <laughs> I don't know if it was class in particular, but, um, they kind of, I don't know. They always attack the reporter though, you know, but they say Tara Uchi kept like expanding on his story and making it more and more outrageous and stuff. But, uh, you know, I'm not sure that's true. Honestly, hmm. you can go through the transcripts yourself, you know, but he, yeah, I don't know. Um, let's see. So then class later amended uh, his analysis to hypothesize that the crew were seeing floating ice crystals reflecting moonlight. But again, I don't think this really holds up to the description of what they actually saw, you know. Ice crystals? Yeah, like... As because, in, in the sky? I mean, to be so specific, yeah, he's saying like like free-floating ice crystals, which, I mean, that could be a thing. Well, when you're up thousands of feet in the air, sure, the air is cold up there. Up yeah. above the clouds, particularly, because he says that they saw the objects up above the clouds. I don't know if there's any like headlights coming off of the seven... 47 itself so maybe they would be reflecting in like a square pattern but what seems strange to me but you know it explains the undulating effect if there's just ice crystals but the way he drew it is like rows of lights you know so i don't you know i'm going with tara uchi on this one me over too i'm going with the, speculation yeah i'm going with the uchmeister um the ucharama and again i don't think ice crystals are going to give uh get give off heat that's going to heat up the light up the cockpit and and heat your face yeah so, um, yeah, that's about it. I, I mean, think we, we got a winner here, we can man. Speculate. <laughs> yeah, I'm going. I'm going with the Ooch man. Yeah, I'm saying, look, he saw he saw a massive craft. The craft hit the cloaking mechanism, and then you know we're being assimilated right now as we speak. Yeah, or observed at least. You know. Yeah, I still love the theory. Just like we started doing nukes, and they're like, all right, we got to make sure these guys don't don't mess up their planet, or so they're benevolent. No, they just don't want to, uh, I mean, they don't care about us one way or another, or I guess, I mean, maybe, yeah, there's like a non, like we said, the, uh, the prime directive, yeah, the prime directive, but, uh, they care more about our resources on earth, right? Like, um, I'm sure it's, you know, if you get into the, I can't even think of the terms or whatever, but you know that the Drake equation, yeah, one of the first factors is you make it past your technological phase without destroying yourself so it would make sense if these civilization civilizations have been through that or observed other civilizations that they would be like okay well this is they're in their terrible twos right now we gotta make sure <laughs> yeah. they don't uh, stick their tongue in a light socket you know <laughs> and maybe they don't even care about the primate species like oh, another species will come around but we want to make sure this planet is at least viable or you know what i mean for the next several million years yeah we don't want to wipe out all life on this planet or whatever yeah which isn't even really a thing but um yeah who knows what you know some kind of intent like that or maybe we need to keep it where we can have liquid water on here because that's kind of a valuable thing and planet wise or whatever we're in the goldilocks zone man well, i've also heard heard the th theory that uh lives are their own sentient beings or whatever so they're kind of caretaking that but that's a little out there maybe that what is their own sentient planets oh and the earth is uh it is a rare gem in this big empty universe you know 
Gaia. Yeah, but uh, but like I said, I think it would be more like a Goldilocks thing. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know how many there are out there, but uh, if there's life that's similar to ours, then they're gonna they're gonna value that water. And I and think, as Sagan said, man, I think carbon based life forms are pretty. That's a that's not a bad um, thing to speculate about, um, just because I guess carbon bi- will bond with almost anything and. Right. Um, I guess he also mentioned something about silicone based life forms or the potential for that. But carbon is much more abundant in the universe. Exactly. It's simpler, right? Exactly. um, Yeah. It's just bio basic biochemistry. Like it's going to be carbon based, right? Yeah. And 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 you're going to need water to do that. And sheer numbers, uh, just in terms of planets and solar systems and galaxies. Um, there's gotta be more. There's, I mean, there's, there's, there's got to be more Goldilocks planets like ours. Oh yeah, definitely, so. definitely. I think they found some, or they speculated yeah. that they found some already. Yeah. One around a binary star, which is cool. Yeah. Um. Well, anyway, I could keep talking about this forever, but I, I guess we'll wrap it up here. But uh, thanks for listening, guys. Love you lots. Take care. Mwah.